Good to be with you guys this morning. My name is Matt, and I oversee our life groups, our young adults ministry, and I do some other things around here at Seacoast, and I get to teach from time to time, and it's really excited to be here. Really full room right now. Hi, does everyone have a seat? Everyone's good? We're taking care of, whoever's taking care of the people getting chairs out and stuff, thank you. I think that's awesome. Uh, so we're going to start out this morning with a couple little uh, important dates of history. First date I have for you, 1902. Does anyone happen? Does anyone know what happened in 1902? Okay, okay. A guy named Willis Carrier invented air conditioning. So let's put our hands together for... <laughs> give it up for Willis. Thank you, Lord, for Willis. Uh, okay, the second date. September 29th. 1991. I don't know if you know the significance of that date. Maybe it's an anniversary in here or a birthday. But there's something that, something huge happened September 29th, 1991. That, my friends, was the day that 80s music died. <laughs> I'm serious, and I'm going to tell you why. 80s music died on September 29th, 1991. You see, by and large, uh, 80s music up to that time, it was, it was defined by excess. You know, it was all about the, you know, big bands with big hair and spandex costumes, kind of like these guys, or these guys, or even these guys. That's a Christian band, by the way. So, it was, so 80s music, it was all about the big the bigness of it, the excess. It was all about the, you know, the, the, the keyboards and synthesizers, layer upon layer upon layer of all of these different things. It was all about the 15-minute guitar solo. It was just, there was so much stuff that was wrapped around, and 80s music, 80s music was just big. And on the night of September 29th, 1991, everything changed. See, that was the night that this small band from Aberdeen, Washington, known as Nirvana, debuted on MTV with their single, Smells Like Teen Spirit. I'm a drummer, and like the, when, that's, when that thing comes in, yes! Okay, when that song was aired on that night, September 29th, 1991, everything changed. You see, Nirvana arrived on the scene and it essentially said that music was no longer going to be about all of the excess. It wasn't going to be anymore about all of the hype, all of the layers and layers of keyboards and synthesizers and all of this, this stuff and 15-minute guitar, guitar solos. No, it was just going to be about the music. And so Nirvana was able to strip away all of the excess stuff, all of the distraction, and in one night, through one song, the 80s were over. In an article I found on MTV's website said, speaking of Smells Like Teen Spirit, it said, it was gutsy and heavy and authentic, and that's what changed the landscape. Nirvana opened people's eyes. In one night, through one song, a rock, a rock and roll renaissance began, which ushered in a cultural shift that would come to define an entire generation. Well, in the same way, I, <laughs> I believe that the church today is in desperate need of some delayering. 
You know, we are in desperate need for some stripping away of all of the layers upon layers upon layers of excess stuff that we've piled up around and covered up the true heart of the Christian faith. You know, the church has had the tendency to add layer upon layer of other things and even good things, even good things over the heart of Christianity and obscuring the gospel message, the simplicity of the gospel. And as a result, many people today, many Christians today, have been distracted away from the music of the gospel. And we desperately need a shedding of all of the add-ons and all of the attachments and all of these things that we've, we've put around the, the Christian faith. It's covered it up, it's concealed it, and it's brought confusion to what the heart of the Christian faith actually is. And so I believe that the church is in desperate need of rediscovering the music of the gospel. And as we get started today, I want to just invite you, I want to ask you, if someone were to come to you and, and said, hey, you, uh, wh- what is the heart of the Christian faith? Like if you had to summarize Christianity, like the heart, the core of it, in just one sentence, what would you say? You know, so I'm going to pass this mic around. We're just going to go around and, I'm just kidding. No, but I want you to think about this morning, think about what do I believe to be the central core theme? Like, what is Christianity all about? And how would I even respond to somebody who asked me that? Um, Because if you're like me, and just being honest here, is that it's very likely that there's been layers and layers of of things that have been added on and different, you know, religious trappings and stuff that have been added on to where you, it's brought distortion and confusion um, and distracted you away from the heart of the Christian faith. So I do believe, I believe that today that God wants, us, wants to remove the layers, and he wants to remove layers so that we can see with stunning clarity the glorious and liberating message of the gospel. I believe that's what he wants to do. So if you have your Bibles, turn or tap with me to the book of Luke. We're going to take a look, Luke, uh, Luke. Uh, let's see, Luke 10, 38 through 42. And if we all could, if you're able, would you stand with me as we read God's word together? Luke 10, verses 38 through 42. Now, as they were traveling along, he, this is Jesus and his disciples, entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all of her preparations, and she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary, for Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. And God, this morning, we ask that you, Lord, would help strip away the layers so that we would see that one thing that is necessary. And God, that in this place, this morning, you would set captives free. You would bind up the brokenhearted. Lord, that we would all leave here, this place, feeling lighter and feeling freer because of what you have done for us. 
Praise your name. Amen. Do I have a seat? Luke, in this passage that we just read, he's making an amazing, amazing contrast. You know, we have Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, which, by the way, was, that was the posture of a disciple. That was the posture of a disciple. And the fact that Mary, a woman, was taking the posture of a disciple, that actually would have shocked most Jewish men at that time. You see, it wasn't normal for women to sit down at the feet and to, to take the posture of a disciple and sit at the feet of a teacher, of a rabbi. But Luke, once again, is highlighting that he's highlighting Jesus' his inclusiveness of women and showing that Jesus, once again, he's pushing back against the cultural norms of the time and in many ways putting the kingdom of God on display. So there we have Mary. She's sitting at the feet of Jesus. She's keeping her eyes and her ears fixed on, on Christ and what he is saying, soaking in every word. And then we've got Martha, who's over in the, the kitchen and other parts of the house, just huffing and puffing and complaining that no one is there helping her. She's, she's all out of sorts because of how much needs to get done. And you guys know those times when you're at your house and, you know, maybe there's company over or just like there's a stuff that needs to get done, you know, and you start... You start sending those signals to other people, like, I need some help over here. You know, like, there's times where I'm doing the dishes, and then you, you're, you're like, oh, I'm going to do the dishes, and I pull out the dish that has the food on it that was never rinsed off, and it, it turned into a fossil <laughs> on the pan. I mean, guys, let's just, let's just rinse the dish out. And so we're not, you know, chiseling away at fossils a few hours later. Just rinse it out and then put it back in there, and I'll take care of it. Anyways. <laughs> but I digress. So... So, but when that happens and I'm doing it, then I start doing that, you know, the passive aggressive breathing. You know that stuff. So, we can relate to that. But you gotta, you gotta also have a little bit of empathy for Martha here, right? She just literally, at a minimum, 13 people, 13 plus people just showed up at her house. She's like, come on in, come on in. That's a lot of people. And so I, we can imagine, you know, and maybe relate to a little bit what Martha is feeling. But Luke right here, he's providing this remarkable contrast. We, here we have two very, very different women and two radically different postures. We have Mary resting and relaxing at the feet of Jesus, completely focused and fixated on him and his words. And we have Martha who's distracted with much serving and preparations. Martha was completely focused, focused and fixated on serving Jesus. So you see, we have, we have Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, learning from him. And then we have Martha on her own feet, trying to do things for Jesus. Mary is restfully seeking to receive from him. Martha, on the other hand, is restlessly trying to achieve for Jesus. And those are radically, radically different postures to take. You know, now it wasn't, now what Martha was doing, it wasn't like she was doing bad stuff. I mean, hospitality is something that we are called to do. You know, in, in Romans 12, 13, it says, share with the Lord's people who are in need and practice hospitality. And we're called to be hospitable people, to give of ourselves in service. But there's more going on here. You see, it wasn't the activity 
necessarily of, of Martha here that Jesus is calling out. Or he responds to it's her attitude in the midst of her activity. And we see it come out when she, her attitude comes out when, when she goes to complain to Jesus. Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. Notice that she doesn't even go to Mary first. I mean, like, that would have been nice. It's like, hey, sis, psst, hey, can you just help me out real quick? Then, I'll get, then, you, then you can get back here. I mean, that would have been great. If just a, a little, hey, come and help me out. Come on. But she doesn't even do that. She goes dr- directly to Jesus and tattletales publicly. I mean, I don't, I don't know who's there. There's probably a lot of people in the room. Publicly complaining uh, about Mary, and she even blames Jesus for not caring. I mean, that's a bold move. She's like, Jesus, just tell her what to do. Come on, help a sister out. You know, I think that would have been a little awkward to witness that whole conversation go down. But respond with Martha, Martha. And by the way, it might, when you read that, it, you know, it might sound like you're saying, like, Martha, Martha. But that's not what's going on here. I re- one commentator said this. I love this. Like, this form of speech is a literary form used to convey intimacy. It is one thing to address a person by their first name, but to repeat it is to use a Jewish form of affection and intimacy. I love that. So Jesus here, he's not berating Martha. He doesn't scold her. He's kind, he's loving, and he's patient. But he sees what's in Martha's heart. And by the way, uh, this is just how it is with Jesus. This is just how it is. When you invite him into your life, don't, don't be surprised at all of the things in your heart that begin to surface. You know, when Jesus shows up, the ugly, the unresolved, the unseen issues tend to surface. And that can be very scary, but it is not. It's not a bad thing for that to happen. When those things, when Jesus comes in and those things begin to surface, that's not a bad thing. It's actually God's, it's a picture of God's grace in your life and in mine. You see, Jesus is, he's transforming us. He's he's changing us. So it's it's God's grace at work in your life that would allow those things to surface so that they can be dealt with. He's changing and transforming. And and guess what? When, when, as he's changing and transforming, guess what? It's going to get really messy at times. But hear this, that his, like our mess will always be met with his mercy. And our failures that surface will always be met with his faithfulness. And that's what we see here. Martha's heart is being revealed and Jesus responds. And he speaks the truth in love to her. He looks at her and says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about many things, but only one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good part, which will not be taken from her. And there's so much in here that we could talk about, but this morning I just want to point our attention to a couple things. A couple things that, I, that Jesus does. In his response to Martha, there's a couple things that Jesus does uh, in responding that way. And the first thing I want to, uh, to talk about is that he shatters a myth. Jesus is shattering a myth that doing equals being. That doing equals being. Let me explain. You know, what Jesus is saying in the story, what he's demonstrating, in many ways, it contradicts 
everything or most everything that you and I grew up learning in this world. I mean, we live in a just do it world. We live in a world that is obsessed with doing, with productivity, with progress. As human beings, we are far more consumed and obsessed with achieving versus receiving. We're far more fixated on working than we are resting. And why is that? Well, we're told every day in a thousand different ways that if we want to be accepted, that we first need to achieve. That if we want to be approved of, if we want approval, then we first need accomplishment. That if we want significance, that we need to be successful. And the overarching message of the world and the culture is that doing precedes being. That what you do defines who you are. That you must do in order to be. That you must do if you really want to become someone who actually matters. You have to get busy. And because most of us have this deep need within ourselves for to be approved, validated, affirmed, we set out to prove our worth by working, by doing. And so we work, we work, we work, we work, 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 all the live long day. We sh- and we hope that all of our working, all of our doing will ultimately deliver the meaning that we crave. We work, we strive, we toil with the hopes that we will in some way, shape, or form be able to finally secure our significance. So doing equals being, that myth is the cultural water that we swim in. And it's no wonder that so many people, so many of us, even myself, are, are, are so tired, so stressed, anxious, and worried about many things. Because think about it, if your identity is based upon your activity, then you will feel the perpetual and crushing burden of having to prove yourself over and over and over again. And it will lead you to despair. I came across this very telling quote by Madonna. Today's just like a music thing, by the way. Uh, that uh, Tim Keller included in his book, Counterfeit Gods, which is a great book. He has Madonna, this quote of Madonna saying this. She says, I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, and then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. Again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre, and that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. Wow, that, first of all, that's just crazy honest. And while you're not, you might not be a famous pop star, can you relate to the feelings and the things that she's expressing? I know I can. You know, it's, it's crushing and burdensome and exhausting living your life believing that what you do dictates who you are and defines who you are. But again, that's the cultural water we swim in. And don't, 
I don't, what I don't want you to hear me saying is like, oh, just, it's blaming just the world, dude, it's in the culture. Like, it's, they're the bad guys. Like, no, this is a human problem. This is a human problem. You see, ever since uh, the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, this goes all the way back to the Garden, that when sin entered the story, that mankind, the human race, has been desperately trying to save itself. You know, ever since Genesis 3, self-salvation has been the default mode of the human heart. We've believed the lie that if we just work hard enough, we will be able to secure for ourselves the justification and approval that our hungry hearts crave. You see, the myth that doing equals being, this is very, it's pervasive. And I wish I could say that doing equals being, that that myth was just something that happened outside of the church. That once God saved you and he brought you into his family, that it was just smooth sailing. I wish I could say that doing equals being, it was just something outside the church, and that once you come in, everything's fine, but I can't. This performance-based mindset exists not just outside the church in the world, It exists very much inside the church as well. Many of us, myself included, fall into this trap, into the trap of importing this same works-based approach, even unintentionally, into our relationship with God. When we do that, we begin to assume that God's, his love and approval and acceptance of us is riding on our performance, our progress. And when this doing equals being mindset begins to infiltrate into the church, we begin to believe the lie that what God cares most about is our personal improvement, our work, our service, our activity. And thus, you see layers and layers of all of these doings and things that we must do begin to get added onto and begin to obscure the gospel. The and then the question, what do I do, becomes the focus more than, what has Jesus done? And we become all about our ongoing performance for Jesus instead of resting in his finished performance for us. And so over time, this works-based approach to God, has, it's wrapped layer and layer of religion over the gospel. And just by the way of definition, religion can be defined as human activity done to satisfy God. But the gospel, on the other hand, is the good news that Jesus already satisfied God for us. And it's amazing to me how we can take this glorious announcement of good news, it's, which is lit of the gospel. It literally means good news, the good news of what God has done, his victory over sin and death through his son, Jesus Christ. And that we can take that glorious announcement, good news, it's it's an announcement, it's a declaration. And we can take that good news, that declaration, and turn it into a checklist of what we need to do. And this happens all the time. And then slowly, Surely we begin to just, I mean, where's the good news? Like the good news that, that once, that we were once so set free by. Like where is that? It's like uh, the marketing gimmicks. This happens to me all the time, more than I want to admit. 
you know, I'm on my, you know, my email, and I'm checking, and all of a sudden you see, like, the, in, in all caps, like, free vacation, all right? And then you're like, okay, I guess I'll click it. <laughs> like, be strong, okay, click. And then free vacation, and you just be in the scroll, and you start, like, okay, I'm gonna do that. Enter it. Okay, here's my email. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's my credit card. Just kidding. Like, take it all. And then you begin to find layer upon layer of all of the fine print and all of the hoops that you need to jump through in order to actually get the free vacation. It doesn't feel free anymore. There's all these things. And so I just, I've done that way too many times. I'm embarrassed. I think I would learn. I think there's a lot of Christians experiencing the same thing. I mean, I can recall friends of mine who, who as newly saved Christians, were so excited and free after encountering the forgiveness and love of Jesus, and then just give it a little bit, a little while, all of a sudden the freedom and gladness was slowly smothered by frustration and guilt. You know, their joy was stifled by all of the fine print, all of the hoops that they were told by well-meaning Christians of what they needed to do you know, if they were going to be a good Christian. And so it's as if we've, we've taken the story of Luke that we just read and we flipped it completely upside down and we tell people that if you are really serious about Jesus, if you're really serious about God and your faith, that you will do, you will do, you will do, you will do more and you will try harder. But Jesus in the story, he's dismantling the assumption that doing equals being. Or... The Christian version of that is that busyness equals godliness. I mean, if you just listen to our, the way we talk a lot of times, it's, it's busyness is a, a badge of honor. That busyness is somehow a spiritual gift. The text says that Martha was busy with much serving. And again, it doesn't say that Martha was dis, um, distracted with bad things. It's not like she's in the back room smoking crack. She's like in the kitchen serving and trying to do good things. The serving is a good, it's a good thing, but it distracted her from the best thing, namely Jesus. You see, it's entirely possible for us to get so consumed with doing things for Jesus that we miss out on receiving from him and resting in the finishedness of his work. So again, the gospel isn't something for us to achieve. It's an announcement for us to receive and believe. So Jesus, he, the first thing that we see is he shatters that myth that doing equals being and dismantles that, the assumption that busyness somehow equals godliness. And the second thing that we see him do is that he invites us to relax. Martha, Martha, why are you are worried and anxious about many things, but the one thing, only one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion. So what Jesus is saying is, come, rest, relax, and receive from me. I am the good portion. I am enough. I am enough for you. And so in the same way that Mary sat at the feet of Jesus, intently listening to his every word, you and I are invited to get off our feet and to sit at his to listen to the word of Christ. And Jesus is calling us out of our frantic and our frustrated busyness and is inviting us to rest in him. So in this story, what we see is that 
It is resting and relaxing in him that Jesus actually applauds. It's not the hard-working person in the kitchen or in the house. It's not that person that he applauds. He applauds the person who's doing nothing, but they're at his feet. That's who he applauds. I know that there's, there's many of us in this room who are thinking, but Matt, Matt, the Bible is filled with commands of things for us to do. And it's true. There are a lot of things that we are called to do, but let's be clear. The Christian, so, well, for the Christian life is not a life of inactivity. We are definitely called to a life of love and service to each other and our neighbor. Absolutely. But what the text is saying, what the story tells us, is that when it comes specifically to our relationship with God, that receiving precedes working. Receiving precedes achieving. Resting precedes working. And this is so hard for us to do. It is so hard. And there's this in- interesting interaction that uh, Jesus has in um, the Gospel of John, in John 6. And there's, a, there's some people that come to Jesus, and they're like, Jesus, okay, what is the works that God requires? What are the works that God requires? And Jesus is like, he, he responds, and he says, here is the work that God requires. Now, if I'm at that point, I'm getting my, give my pen. Give my, where's my pen? Give my pen. Okay. What's the work that God requires? Tell me. Okay. And his response is this. The work that God requires is believe in the one that he has sent. Are you kidding me? Believe. What do I do, though? Like, believe in the one that God has sent. Believe in me. You see, the work at its core, the, there is no, nothing for us to do there's only a message for us to receive and to believe. It's not just a message, it's a man. It's the person of Christ. The work is to believe. But believe what? Well, believe that it is finished. Believe that everything between God and you has been forever settled on the cross Believe that you are his and that in Christ you possess all of the approval and acceptance that you, that you need. And that's the good news of the gospel. And the irony is, the more that we actually believe this and we relax and we rest in that, the more that we, we, we rest in, that, in the gospel, the more our hearts are actually freed and fueled to love and serve others. That's the, that's the irony of the whole thing. The more we believe and relax in the gospel, the more our hearts are actually freed and fueled to love and serve others. And I think about it, if, if Jesus at any point in time had said, hey, Mary, can you go get me a drink? She probably would have jumped up and done whatever he had wanted, wanted her to do. Because there's no better place to serve from than a place of rest and being reminded of who you are and whose you are. We also need to recognize that it's a mistake to think that God is just interested in mere obedience. I mean, think about it. If, if it was just about mere obedience, then Jesus would have praised the Pharisees. I mean, they were, they were the ones who were getting it done. But he doesn't praise the Pharisees. He's not just interested in mere obedience. The truth is he's interested in a certain kind of obedience, an obedience that comes as an overflow and a response to what he's done. That's what produces that obedience. 
And that's the kind of obedience that, that he is interested in that brings him such joy. So in fact, if our hearts aren't soaked and saturated by the good news of what Jesus has already done, all of our Christian activity, all of our doing is just going to cause us to crash and burn in the end. You know, after searching for images of 80s bands online, I came across an interview where a pastor was asked, so what is the role of grace-motivated effort or works in the Christian life? And I love this response. I think we have it on the screen for you. He says, the Christian life is not let go and let God, but trust God and get going. Trust that in Christ, God has settled all accounts between him and you, and then get going in sacrificial service to your wife, your husband, your children, your friends, your enemies, your coworkers, your city, the world. The vertical declaration that everything we need, we already possess in Christ, that forever secures us and therefore frees us to see the needs around us and to work hard horizontally to meet those needs. You see, all the doings of the Christian life, they're designed to be lived from a place of complete and unchanging approval and acceptance by God, not a life lived for that. There's a huge difference in there. So let me ask you, what does your description of the Christian faith sound like? Can you hear the sweet sound of the gospel? Or is, is your understanding, is it covered up and is it muffled by layer upon layer of religious activity and burden? Does your definition of the Christian faith point more to your work for God or his finished work for you? 